And Lord, as we come to your word today, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who reveals himself to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we study your word, that you would give us a deeper understanding of the way that you reveal yourself and the purpose for revealing yourself to us. We pray for all of us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray for our children who are here and pray that even they would have, uh, that they would have faith as a result of hearing your word preached. Lord, please use this time to bring glory to Christ and to strengthen, to edify, to instruct, and to encourage your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 19. And this, as we go through it, you're going to recognize bits and pieces of it. This is actually uh, one of the most beloved of all the Psalms. Uh, There have been countless songs and and hymns and spiritual songs inspired by it. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce notes that he found a total of seven hymns that were developed just from this one psalm, and that was just in the one hymnal he had at his church. There were seven hymns based on this psalm in that hymnal. In addition to those seven hymns, however, uh, there have just been countless other praise and worship songs that have been written in the, in the modern contemporary era based on this psalm, which makes me wonder, what makes this psalm so widely loved? I mean, maybe it's the fact that it's just a, a beautiful piece of poetry. That's possible. Uh, maybe it's the theme of the song. Uh, the, the, this psalm reveals a, a profound truth that should do something to us. It should stir something deep within each one of us. And that truth that, it, that, that, that it's focused on that should inspire us is the fact that God reveals himself to us. In Psalm 8, You might remember David wrote to God asking, what is man that you take thought of him? Now, if we have even the slightest clue, the the slightest idea of how great and how glorious and how awesome and how holy God is, it should render us completely awestruck to consider the fact that God actually considers us and reveals himself to us. And this is what we see from the opening of Scripture to the end of Scripture. From the beginning of Scripture, God reveals himself as a God who is personal, a God who speaks. He isn't silent. He isn't distant. No, he says, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, from the opening of Scripture. And boom, light exists. The question is, How does God reveal himself? How does God speak? And Psalm 19 helps us to understand how God speaks to human beings. Now, you may have seen, if you're on Facebook, you may have seen a meme that kind of floats around from time to time in which there's a man uh, asking God to speak to him, and then in the next frame, it's a picture of God handing him a Bible. Uh, That is certainly one way that God speaks to us through his word, and that's what we'll see in the second half of the psalm that we're looking at today. But before the psalmist describes the way that God speaks to us in the scriptures, he tells us that God reveals things about himself to us through nature. Theologians would call this natural revelation or or general revelation, and then they would refer to the scriptures as special revelation. Now, one of the things that I've learned as we've been studying the Psalms is that they aren't just kind of thrown together randomly. And it can kind of seem like that at first glance, but Psalms 1 and 2, they introduce the Psalms, they challenge the reader to meditate on God's word as they go through it, to worship the Son of the King, that he not become angry, and to find blessing by taking refuge in him. That's all in Psalms 1 and 2. But then we saw a theme emerge through Psalms 3 through 14, and that, that theme was that God and God's King are abandoned and rejected by man. But what we're seeing in Psalms 15 to 24 is that God's king or God's servant is accepted by God. 
And so there's a messianic theme in these psalms, Psalms 15 to 24, that give us a window into Christ's heart and, and mind. Now, there are several connections between Psalm 18 and 19. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see that Psalm 18 is pretty long. It's 50 verses long, and I thought, well, I, if I had a couple months to preach that, maybe I could uh, do Psalm 18. But uh, given that we wait a whole month to, uh, to have the next sermon in the Psalms, I didn't think that would be the most efficient thing to do. So you'll see, though, that there are actually several connections between Psalm 18 and 19. These aren't put together just randomly. No, these two actually belong together. Uh, It's abundantly clear that these psalms were put together intentionally uh, as they tie together in a lot of ways. One of the names for God in Psalm 18 is my rock. Uh, David uses that term for God three times in Psalm 18 in uh, verses 2, 31, and 46. And if you look down at the end of Psalm 19, you'll see that David uses that word for God again, that term for God again, referring to God as my rock and my redeemer. Now beyond that, both Psalms describe God's power uh, as it's displayed in the heavens. Both Psalms make note of the perfection of Scripture. Both Psalms make note of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, Both describe the, the blessing of obedience to what is revealed in Scripture. But perhaps most importantly, both Psalms touch on the theme of the perfection, the utter perfection of God's servant and ultimate king, of whom David was only a foreshadowing. And of course, that perfect ultimate king is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Psalm 19 was given to us by God to instruct our hearts and to instruct our minds to look to Christ, to believe with Christ in a, in a, in a true saving faith and to obey what God has instructed. And so the point of this psalm overall, in a nutshell, is that because God reveals himself to be both present and powerful, and because God's word reveals him to be a redeemer, we should seek, fear, love, obey, and serve him. So we start with verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, reminding us that this is a song. It was something that was sung. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now again, this is describing what we would call natural revelation or general revelation. But this is where Psalm 19 begins, by telling us that the heavens testify to the glory of God. I mean, we can imagine how many nights David, as a a young shepherd, might have, have spent looking up at the stars above as he watched over his flock, and he understood the message that they were sending, the message that the stars and the skies and the heavens were sending. He understood that message loud and clear. The, the clear night sky in a place where there is no light pollution is one of the most beautiful things that a person can ever behold. The stars don't just testify to the fact, however, that there is a God. They do that. But they also testify to the fact that God is glorious. Now, what does that even mean? What does it mean when we say that God is glorious. I mean, in this context, the term glory doesn't have a moral quality. In other words, the heavens don't declare God's moral attributes. They don't declare that he is just or that he is loving or that he is merciful or good or holy or righteous. Right on down the, the moral qualities, the moral attributes of God. Rather, the message that the heavens send is an indication of his power his presence, and his majestic beauty, his power, his presence, and his majesty. One commentator defines glory as, quote, that asset which makes people or individuals and even objects impressive, end quote. So it's the same sense that we get when we read in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, for example, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. It was his power. It was his presence, it was his beauty, his majesty. 
So this is very likely what Paul had in mind when he was writing Romans chapter 1. He says in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, there's one of them, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now who is they? It's the people who back in verse 18 suppressed the truth. In unrighteousness. And Paul and David here are both saying there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for that. Paul's saying that man is aware of God's presence and man is aware of God's power and that this awareness of God's presence and power should cause every human being on the face of the planet to love God, to worship Him, to serve Him, and to obey Him, to be thankful unto Him, not only for the fact that they have life, but for the fact that God continually is sustaining their life with every breath. The Holy Spirit tells us through Paul's pen that God's glory is so evident in creation that there is not one person ever who has an excuse for not seeking and worshiping God. And yet, Paul makes it clear that that is not what man does by nature. Instead, by nature, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, instead, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. What a tragedy. That describes you by nature, friends. It describes me by nature. It describes everybody by nature. By nature, we all suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. People either completely deny that God exists as atheists, or they create a lesser God, they create a false idol, a smaller God, and they worship that smaller God who's, who's tamer, who's, who's more manageable, who can be subdued. But part of Paul's theme in Romans is to show that the only way that our old nature is overcome is by God's grace. The only way we go from being described in Romans chapter 3 as people who don't seek God to being people who seek God is because God has sought us. But the point that David is driving home here is that nature, the heavens, have a message. It has a message. And that message is that God exists, that he is personal, that he is present, that he is beautiful, that he is powerful, that he is majestic and glorious. And when we look at the precision and the order and the power that must have been necessary to not only create the heavens above, but to continually sustain them, our response should be to seek God, to fear Him, love Him, serve Him, and obey Him. Now you might say that from, from here, from, from Psalm 19 verse 1, David proceeds to tell us why none is left with no excuse. One of the reasons, the first reason that we're going to see that nobody has an excuse for not loving, worshiping, and obeying God is because the testimony of creation is continuous. The testimony of creation is continuous. Look at verse 2 with me. He writes, Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So the revelation of this, this power, this presence and majesty of God is not the type of witness that is sporadic. It's not the type of witness that kind of comes and goes. It, for example, if you remember in, in ancient Israel, God would, uh, he would sometimes send a prophet. Sometimes he would send many prophets. But there were also times when God sent no prophets. Such is not the case with nature's testimony of God. David says that it's there every day, all day, and every night, all night. The day proclaims God's glory continuously, and night picks up where day left off, and day picks up where night left off, etc., etc. Nature never, 
ever ceases to proclaim the glory of God. In fact, there has never in the history of the universe been one single nanosecond in which nature did not proclaim God's glory. And so, man has no excuse. Man has no excuse because nature's testimony is continuous. But it is also copious. That is, it is abundant. The the image uh, of pouring forth speech isn't a weak image. It's a very strong image. It's not an image of a creek bed that you know is nearly dried up or that maybe it has a, a pool of stagnant water here and there. No, rather the, the, the term is something that would describe a, a strong flowing river. Uh, the Hebrew word gives us an image of a spring that is just gushing out like a fire hydrant when you take the cap off. Natural revelation testifies to the glory of God in such a way that His glory is seen in every individual part of creation. If you look above at the heavens, which are more immense than we can possibly fathom, the message is there being proclaimed. And if you go to the smallest subatomic parts of creation, you'll find incredible order, incredible design, and blatant signs of intelligence, all of which testifies to the glory of the God who created all things. Nature's testimony to God's glory is consistent, it's copious, and next David shows us that it is clear. Look at verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. He continues writing, "'There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard.'" Their line has gone out throughout the earth and their, and their utterances to the end of the world. In other words, language isn't a barrier. It's not like only some people can understand it. Only some people get the message. No, it transcends language. There's no noise and there are no words because noise and words aren't necessary. No matter what your language might be, the message given by nature is clear. And it's not difficult to understand. Further, it transcends culture. David says that their line has gone through all the earth. So it doesn't matter if you're at the North Pole or if you're at the South Pole. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a desert or in the middle of a jungle. It doesn't matter if you're on a continent or if you're on an island. It doesn't matter where you are. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation across the globe at all times throughout human history have been absolutely surrounded by the testimony of God's glory as revealed in nature. Nature's testimony to God's glory is consistent, it is copious, it is clear, it transcends culture. David uses the sun to illustrate his point. Look at the the last part of verse 4 into verse 6. He says, In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So when David says in them, it's clear that he's referring once again to the heavens. He says that in them, God has placed a tent for the sun. James Boyce notes that this is, quote, probably to be understood as the darkness into which the sun retreats each night and from which it emerges boldly each new day, end quote. So David likens the son to a bridegroom and to a strong man. So it's, it's likened to two things here. The idea is that the son, uh, like a bridegroom, is eager. It's filled with energy. And like a strong man, it's filled with power. Where does all that energy come from? David is saying that this testifies of God's glory. How? Because any thinking person can understand that the sun cannot have eternally existed. If it had, it it would have already burned out by now. It wouldn't be like a young man who's a bridegroom. It would be like an old man. It wouldn't be like a strong man. It would be more like a dead man. See, friends, the more science has learned about the sun and the universe, the more pronounced, the more underscored the testimony of God's glory revealed in nature has become. 
We understand, David might not have understood, but we understand that there's the, the day that's coming in which the sun will burn out. Why is that? Because it only has a finite amount of energy. It's the idea that that energy can't last forever. So what that means is that if the sun were eternally existing on its own, it would have already run out of energy, as would everything else. We also know that the sun is at the perfect distance from the earth. We know, science has told us, that if if the earth were just a few million miles closer to the sun, which is really nothing when you consider uh, the, the size of the heavens, if we were just a few million miles closer to the sun, the surface of the earth would be far too hot for us to exist. And if the earth were a few million miles further from the sun, the surface of the earth would be far too cold for us to exist. Science studies nature, and nature testifies to the glory of God. Science was originally a field that was founded by Christians who sought to better know and to to better understand God. But over time, it was taken over by those who sought to instead use science to prove that there is no God. And yet, The irony is that the more science discovers about nature, the more pronounced, the more clear, the more abundant the testimony of God's glory has become. That's why Robert Jastrow, the the founder and former director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and he concludes his book by writing this. He says, quote, "...for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason..." The story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. End quote. Nature's testimony to God is consistent. It is copious, it is clear, and it transcends culture. And the more science has learned the more obvious this has all become. And this is the light, this is the truth that will bear testimony against every rebel on that final day. From every place on earth, from every time throughout earth's history. Because even though everyone has heard and seen the testimony of God's glory in the created order, none have turned to God because of it. None have sought him. None have done good in light of what has been revealed in nature. Instead, man universally suppresses the truth about God. And thus, God is just to condemn anyone and everyone who has turned their backs on the truth and ignored the testimony of creation of every square inch of the universe. Now you might say, you know, I... I've looked at the the heavens. I've looked at nature. And that's not the message that I get. I I don't get the message that God is powerful, present, and majestic. And if that's the case, if, if that's you, let me encourage you to ask yourself some very honest questions. Could it be that you are trying to avoid the clear testimony of nature? Could it be that you refuse to acknowledge the message that all of creation is constantly, copiously, and clearly declaring to all people because you don't want that message to be true? Now, just to be clear about something, the testimony of nature regarding God's glory should not be confused with personal, private revelation. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you've got a bed of uh, of red roses. You've got all these red roses that grow red year after year after year. But let's just say that the time comes when you're having a year in which you're, you've just been faced with one incredible difficulty after another after another. And during that year, you notice that one of the roses in your red roses is pink. Now, hey, you realize that's your favorite color. The pink is your favorite color. Is that a sign from God trying to communicate to you that you're going to make it and everything's going to be okay? Is that revelation from God? You have no justification for interpreting it that way. 
See, nature reveals the glory of God, but the specific message, the words that God has given to us are all contained within Scripture. In other words, natural revelation has a message, but that message is very limited in terms of what it says or what it declares. Its purpose is not to give you ambiguous messages that are open to 10 million possible interpretations. No, its purpose is to reveal God so that nobody, nobody will be able to claim ignorance on that final day when they stand before God. See, the power, presence, and majesty of God is revealed in nature. But if we want to know God personally, that is only possible through the other type of revelation, and that is special revelation. The scriptures, God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, holy, written word. Think of it this way. I wear a a wedding ring at all times. I I, I never take it off. Uh, What's the message that gets sent by me wearing a wedding ring? That I'm, I'm married, right? That I've committed myself to a woman who has committed herself to me. But what does, that, what does my ring reveal about my favorite kind of food? What does my ring reveal about my education, my favorite kind of music, uh, my likes, my dislikes? What does it reveal about my sense of humor? Absolutely nothing, right? You, you'll have to read my autobiography to find all that out. And No, I don't have an autobiography, but let's just pretend for a second. In the same way, the heavens and all of creation testify to the glory of God, but we cannot know him personally without his written word. Now you might notice, as you glance at your Bibles, that God is only mentioned one time in the entire first half of the psalm, and that's back in verse 1. The Hebrew word that David uses there is El, which is just the, the general Hebrew word for God. But as we now move to the second half of the psalm, we're going to see David use God's covenant name, Yahweh, a total of six times between verses 7 and 9, and then a final seventh time in verse 14. What's the significance of that change? There's actually a huge significance to that shift, and it's simply this. Nature tells us that there is a God who is glorious, all-powerful, all-wise, personal, and, and beautiful, but it's God, God's word that reveals him to be a gracious redeemer. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. David continues, writing, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So as we go through this, you you notice automatically, right, that there's been a lot of repetition, that that each verse, it's repeating the, the blank blank of the Lord, the blank of the Lord over and over and over again. And each one of those things is a synonym for God's word or for for scripture. If you like to circle in your Bible or if you like to mark up or or highlight your Bible, you might want to circle these words uh, because they're all synonyms. They all refer to the same thing, scripture. Uh, They are in verse 7, law and testimony. In verse 8, precepts and commandment. And then in verse 9, judgments. What's interesting to note is that all of these synonyms for Scripture are also found in Psalm 119, and they're introduced in the exact same order in Psalm 119 as well. Now, the first of these synonyms, law, the Hebrew word is Torah. Now, sometimes uh, the the Hebrew word Torah refers only to the law of Moses, uh, but sometimes it refers to the whole canon of Scripture. In this case, it refers to all of the Scriptures. And what does David say of the Scriptures? The first thing he says is that they're perfect. They're perfect. And, And that's a very important place to start. But he also notes that they have a purpose. 
restoring the soul. That's the way that the uh, NASB translates it. The, the Hebrew word restoring is actually somewhat vague. It, it's hard. It doesn't have a, a word-for-word translation to English. Uh, the, the ESV translates the word reviving. That's a good translation. The King James translate, uh, translates the word converting. Uh, that's a good translation. But all of these terms capture the essence of what David is saying here. He's saying that by nature, we are crooked, but God's word is straight. So when God's word is preached, his word, by the Holy Spirit's power, does the work of conversion, uh, but it also does more than that. See, if that's all it did, you know, you could come to church, you could hear the gospel and believe, and you'd never need the scriptures again. But they do more than just convert. They also strengthen, they, they, they straighten, they fortify our faith. Think of it like a chiropractor. The, the chiropractor's job is to straighten your back, right? And by nature, let's say that you have a natural inclination to slump. And so what happens? The longer you stay away from your chiropractor, the more your back starts to slump, right? So the more crooked your spine becomes. But if you're making regular visits to your chiropractor, your back stays upright and straight. So there's a correlation between the two. And likewise, there's a correlation between being straight and crooked and how much time you spend in God's word. So the same is true of the scriptures. The longer you stay in the scriptures and the more frequently you you put yourself in the scriptures, you, you, you read the scriptures and study the scriptures, the more conformed to Christ's likeness you will become. The longer you stay away, on the other hand, the more conformed to the ways of the world and the ways of your own thinking you'll become. God's word is our our spiritual food, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? When he was in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan, he he quoted scripture. He, He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so when people don't come to church for a while, when they just kind of disappear for a while. I I get concerned for the same reason that a parent uh, would get concerned for a child who just stops eating. See, don't fool yourself. None of us can go for long without God's word being preached to us before we start becoming crooked, before we start losing spiritual strength and vitality. David continues telling us that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now the word simple here doesn't mean stupid in this sense. Rather, it refers to the foolish. Uh, It it can refer even to those who are uninstructed. Uh, Think of children, for example, and how they're lacking in the kind of uh, grown-up understanding that you would have after 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, of living, right? but they have an innocence about them. They they have a a simplicity about them. The Bible not only converts and nourishes and revitalizes us, but it also teaches us how to be wise by God's standards and how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. You know, I I have several friends, um, I I know people who have advanced degrees and, and even doctorates, and many of them have philosophies and ideas that just do not line up with Scripture. These, there are children uh, that I know who have a better understanding of Scripture than some people I know who have PhDs. And so in that sense, Scripture makes the simple wise. The child who's uneducated is wiser than the adult who is very educated and yet does not immerse himself or herself in the scriptures. David continues, the precepts of the Lord are right, he says, verse 8, adding that they cause the heart to rejoice. Do you see the progression that David's making? I think a lot of people have the idea that if you read the Bible, you're, you're a dry legalist who doesn't know what joy is. And David says, you have no idea what you're talking about if that's what you think. No, he's making a progression here. He's saying the scriptures convert us, they strengthen us, they make us wise, and they give us joy. They give us joy. Why? Because it is miserable to walk in the darkness. And the scriptures 
light our way. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See, without regularly immersing ourselves and exposing ourselves to Scripture, we're not only foolish, but we're also blind. It's only with the light of Scripture that we can see and make sense of the world and navigate through the world accordingly. Without the light of Scripture to light our path, we're in the dark and we end up falling into spiritual pitfalls. See, Scripture helps us make sense of the world around us. Some theologian at some point said, I don't need to see what's going on in the world to know what's going on in the world. All I need is a Bible. And that is true. And that's what David's saying here. It navigates its light for us. It takes us out of darkness. It tells us what the world is like even when our eyes aren't making any sense of it. See, there's a certain effect that Scripture has on us. Look at verse 9. The, the Word of God instructs us to fear God. And that fear of the Lord has a purifying effect. I, I know from my own experience and from what God's Word tells me about myself and about the rest of humanity that we have a tendency to try to make God less fearsome, more manageable, tame, maybe even subdued. But if you look throughout Scripture, every time somebody comes face-to-face with God, they are absolutely terrified to stand before Him. Woe, for me, for I, woe is me, for I am lost, said Isaiah. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, said Peter. John says that when he saw a vision of Christ in the fullness of His glory, he passed out as though dead in Revelation 1.7. The God of the Bible is fearsome. He's not tame. He's not subdued. He's not manageable. The God of the Bible is perfectly holy and righteous, and all of His judgments are righteous. He's fearsome, but He's good. And He's loving. And He's given us His Word so that we could know these things about Him. That's why David continues, writing in in verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. He's talking about the Scriptures. He says, They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. See, the principle here is, what you treasure is where you will find pleasure. And for some of us, that's scary. That should be scary when we understand what God's Word says. See, for the Christian, there should be no greater treasure in all of the world than God's Word. So I ask you today, does that accurately summarize your attitude about the Scriptures? Is it something where you feel like, ah, I I can take it or or leave it. I I can skip a couple weeks of, of church and it really doesn't make a difference. And then that turns into a couple months and, ah, it's not really making that much of a difference in my life. Would you do that with something that you truly treasure? I would challenge you and say, no, you wouldn't. Do you love God's word? Do you treasure it? Would you rather have God's word than all the world's riches or fame or power? Let's just be honest. It's not as easy for us to answer that question with the answer we know is the right answer as it should be. We know what the answers to these questions should be, right? The answer should be yes. And yet, our lives often tell a different story. So why should we treasure God's Word so highly? David tells us in the verses that follow. Let's look at verses 11 to 14. He says, Moreover, by them, speaking of Scripture, Moreover, by them, your servant is warned in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. And also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What David is telling us here 
is that the scriptures have an effect on our lives. Specifically, they have a purifying effect in our lives. The reason that they are so valuable, the reason that they are to be treasured more than gold, more than anything, any earthly treasure, is because they tell us what pleases God and what doesn't please God, and nothing matters more than that. See, our problem is underscored by the fact that we can't discern these things, what pleases God and what doesn't please God, by nature. We can't look at nature and, and know things about God, what God finds sinful or what God is, uh, finds pleasure in. Nature doesn't tell us that God is a God who hates sin and, and has no tolerance for sin. We need scripture for that. Nature doesn't tell us what the consequence for sin is. We need scripture for that. And nature doesn't tell us that redemption is freely offered by repenting and believing in the one and only Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need Scripture for that too. And Scripture warns us of the cost of not doing that. It warns us of the, of the high cost of sin. David understood that. If you love and, and if you desire God, you will love and desire his word too. And if you, if you love God, keeping his word will be its own reward for you. You will find joy. You will find joy because you'll realize that it's something that's not natural for you. It's, it's not something that prior to conversion you were capable of doing. It's only possible to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, which gives us assurance, which gives us joy. It's a reward. It's its own reward. David also knew that on his own, he had no idea how sinful he was. He couldn't look at the heavens. He couldn't look at the trees and the flowers and all of creation and understand how sinful he was. He understood that nobody, himself included, was able to discern the depths of their own sinfulness. Like everybody else, he needed Scripture to discern his errors and to uncover faults within him that he was unaware of. But let us be clear about this. Ignorance of the depths of our sinfulness does not excuse our sinfulness before God. The question is, friends, how, how could David, or anybody else for that matter, be acquitted of his faults before God? How can he or, or how can we be declared innocent before a holy and righteous God? Just as we have to look back, his word instructs us to look back in faith on the sacrifice that God provided in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to atone for sin, David had to look forward in faith to that day when the Son of God himself would shed his blood for the remission of sins and the forgiveness and the redemption of his people. And so David prays for acquittal, knowing that God is perfectly just, and knowing that God must deal with his sin in a way in which God can be both just and the justifier of all who come to him. So he prays for acquittal, knowing that God is merciful unto sinners who come to him in faith and repentance. And that's what David does. He doesn't just, if you notice, he doesn't just want to be freed from the penalty of sin. He doesn't just want to be forgiveness and to continue on sinning. No, what the, what the person of God wants is more than just freedom from the penalty of sin. They also want freedom from the power of sin. And that's what David wants. He wants to be freed not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of it. That's why he prays, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Apart from God's grace in Christ, friends, that's exactly what sin does. It reigns and rules over you. So is your desire not only to be freed from the penalty of sin, to have your sin atoned for, but is your desire also to be freed from the power of sin in your life? The psalm ends with the reminder 
that what happens outwardly is not what God is looking at. It's possible to go to church every week. It's possible to read your Bible every day. It's possible to pray all the time and for you to still have your heart a million miles away from God. David has an understanding that his heart is wicked and that his heart is exactly what God is looking at. So this ends with the reminder that God knows the deepest thoughts and the deepest meditations of our hearts. That nothing in all of creation or even within us is hidden from him. And so he must be pleased with what he sees. We want him to be pleased by what he sees inwardly. Inwardly. Because what we do outwardly starts with what we're thinking inwardly. Does that make sense? It's like the root. And what happens out outwardly is like the fruit. Two totally different things. God isn't worried about the fruit because you can do all the right things. You can have a checklist and go down them and yet your heart be a million miles away from God. So David's saying, let my heart be pure. And that's something that can only, only happen by God's grace. See, Jesus, unlike us and unlike David, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. As a man, he was the only blameless person ever. He was blameless and declared innocent of any and every transgression. You and I and David and the rest of humanity, on the other hand, we are guilty on our own. Our greatest need is for a Savior to pay our sin debt, lest the sin debt remain on us. Our greatest need is for Jesus, the only one who was declared innocent of any and every transgression, to stand in our place as our substitute, bearing the wrath that we deserve. And for his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, to be credited to us so that we may stand before God in his merit, the innocence and the obedience of Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus offers to everyone who comes to him. The Bible promises his innocence and his obedience will be credited to all who believe in him. Both nature and the scriptures instruct us very clearly, friends, to fear God, to serve him, to love him, and to obey him, to worship him. The heavens reveal that God is glorious, that he's powerful, but it's his word that reveals that he is a rock and redeemer for all who will repent and believe in Christ and who will therefore stand before God in God's own perfect righteousness, credited to them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Father, we confess to you now in the silence of our hearts that apart from your grace working in us, we would ignore the testimony of nature and we would surely ignore the testimony of your word. Indeed, your word declares that we cannot understand it apart from your grace. So we thank you for your grace in drawing us to yourself, in removing the veil from our hearts to understand your word and to believe in your only son, the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that our faith would grow. We pray, Lord, that our trust in him would be magnified exponentially. And we pray, Lord, that we would come to, to love and to desire to obey your word just as Christ, your son, did. We recognize, Lord, that we cannot do it perfectly, but we recognize that Jesus did. And so it's in his merit that we stand 
by grace through faith and that we are justified before you. We thank you for that precious gift of salvation and redemption, forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that we would have a deeper understanding of this and that this understanding would bear fruit. That Christ would be glorified in our lives. That we would desire more so for Christ to be glorified in our lives as we submit ourselves to the authority and the sufficiency of your word for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.